Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Tim Higgins, technology reporter, Wall Street Journal, and author of PowerPlay. Tesla, Elon Musk, in the bed of the century. Boy, oh boy, was Tesla a bed of the century. Tesla has gone on to revolutionize electric vehicles, the way that consumers look at them, the way that they're manufactured. And Tim, in his book, PowerPlay, he pulled back the curtain to tell the story of Tesla, the individuals that played critical roles throughout the history and the founding of Tesla, from Rawlinson to Feel to JB, and then told this story of the founding of Tesla, how if JB Straubel in 2003 never attended a talk Elon Musk gave at Stanford about space, we might not be sitting here talking about Tesla. There was all these defining moments that made Tesla a reality, and it wasn't just Elon Musk. There was incredible individuals, incredible engineers that made this happen, and Tim did a wonderful job of explaining and telling the story today. And it was a really great, interesting conversation that shined a really positive light on Tesla and made you look at Tesla for the incredible engineering talent that the company achieved. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor. I'm happy to have you here. Your book was absolutely phenomenal. Your reporting was incredible. But best of all, it was extremely, extremely, extremely well-written and fun to read. I don't know how you did it, but you pulled off the perfect recipe for a book. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I uh, hope a lot of people will feel the same way. Reading your book, the 1986 song Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins, which was made famous in Top Gun, kept going through my head because it constantly seemed the way that you wrote this. Tesla was constantly on the highway to the danger zone. How do they pull it off all the time? Absolutely. You're, you're right on there that uh, the, the history of Tesla has been one of near misses and, and uh, possible calamities. When, In fact, when I started writing this book in 2018, I thought I was writing the story of a very public uh, demise of Tesla. But clearly, that's not what, what turned out. And over the next few years, as I worked on the book, it became clear to me that it was a story of uh, probably this generation's uh, most remarkable corporate turnaround. And it didn't just happen overnight. And that's why I think this book um, is important, because it goes back to the beginning and really lays out how the idea came about, a rather improbable idea that a startup could bring forth an electric car that might compete against the likes of General Motors to becoming what it is today, the world's most valuable automaker. And it it's that drama that I think you're picking up on, the idea that, you know, at every turn there was near misses. There was, and there was a lot of, you documented this well in the book, if somebody didn't attend an event, it wouldn't have happened. And one of those events was in 2003 when J.B. Schrubble attended Elon Musk giving a talk at Stanford about space. If J.B. never went to that event and dangled the relationship with Rosen, who was the father of communication satellite, would that Tesla never have happened? Would it just when, and the propulsion company just kind of gone its own way and this company would have never gotten legs if he didn't show up that day and went up to Elon? Well, it's a good question. And it's one of those kinds of things that I really wanted to lay out in the book, all these kind of kind of not miracles, but what would have happened if kind of situations where a lot of Tesla in, in popular mythology here is Elon Musk sleeping on the factory floor and bringing out the company. But in reality, there there's a kind of a constant churn of just the right person at just the right time that helps the company deal with something that was make or break. And J.B. Straubel is clearly uh, one of those key pieces of ingredients in the company's history. Uh, 
when at that time in 2003, 2002, here's a young man who was very gifted academically, had attended Stanford, had gotten a master's degree, and was trying to find his place in the world. And, you know, he was kind of at the point where he knew he didn't want to go to a big company, but um, he wanted to kind of change the world. And if not for this kind of meeting with Elon Musk, who knows where his path would have gone. And they end up having lunch. And it really didn't go particularly well at the beginning. Harold was not impressed with what Elon was doing at SpaceX. SpaceX was this kind of crazy idea, you know, a private rocket company to go into space. Elon, this was where he was pouring his fortune. And they were having dinner at a steakhouse or lunch at a steakhouse. And to kind of keep the conversation going, JB kind of says, well, you know, hey, here's this other thing I've been working on, too. And what it was, was kind of the idea of, of for an electric car. He had been spending some of his time at a at a car shop uh, in the L.A. area called AC Propulsion. This is a company that really uh, is among one of the early pioneers in development of electric car. They played a role or the, their founder played a role in the development of EV1 for uh, General Motors. And but. You know, they were doing cutting edge stuff and they were thinking about how to put lithium ion battery cells into an electric car. These thing, they fat finger sized cells, tie a bunch of them together, create a battery pack. And maybe this was going to be the key breakthrough. And, and what JB, what he started thinking was, well, hey, here's the potential. Why not create a car with so many cells that it could drive from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. on one charge and show the world what's possible? This could create so much excitement, maybe the world would start going to electric. And so he he kind of pitched the idea to, to Elon and was asking for some money. And Elon ended up putting a little bit of money into this. But that's the kind of the way that JB and Elon come together um, in what would be very fruitful uh, relationship. Tim, if JB Straubel didn't have a relationship with Howard Rosen, who was the father of communication satellites, attended a talk Elon Musk was giving at Stanford in 2003 about space, would we be sitting here talking about Tesla? Because JB played a critical role in the early days in the company and the battery issues. He was like the glue, it seems. It's a, it's a good question. And it's one of the kind of many examples that I found in the history of Tesla where uh, at just the right time, um, the right person comes to deal with whatever challenge Tesla was facing. Uh, and without a doubt, without JB Straubel, it's hard to imagine Tesla the way it is uh, today. Uh, here's a guy who was a young man right out of uh, Stanford, where he got uh, an undergraduate and graduate degree, trying to figure out his place in the world, uh, ends up getting a meeting with Elon and pitching uh, Elon kind of his his idea for uh, a demonstration vehicle uh, that would, uh, an electric vehicle that'd be able to go from Los Angeles to DC. And he thought on one charge, and he thought this would really get people excited about the potential. He ends up getting hired at the early early days of Tesla and becomes really probably the most experienced person in the in the battery technology and oversees and eventually begins to lead the team to figuring out how to kind of do the big breakthrough that is Tesla, the big technological advancement, and that is the battery pack technology. Uh, the company was founded on the idea that lithium ion cells were the, the technology to make electric cars possible. As you know, the auto industry for years had been thinking about electrification of the car or just zero emission vehicles in general. But the, the problem 
or the, the hurdle continued to be what was the right technology. And a lot of companies were always looking for the next perfect technology. Whereas the founders of Tesla, their bet was, well, why not take something that's already off the shelf? And that, that gets to lithium ion cells. Uh, these battery technology were being used in camcorders and laptops. They were rather new. They were becoming quite mainstream. And the bet was, well, you know, let's take thousands of these. They're fat finger sized cells, uh, wire them together, use software to manage them to create a battery pack. Um, and this would be kind of the breakthrough. It would have the, the power that would be needed to do a car, but also the, the cost would probably eventually come down, the thinking was, because right off the bat, you'd be one of the world's largest buyers of lithium ion cells if you're putting thousands and thousands of these things into each car. And so that would give you scale over time. So that was kind of the idea of Tesla. But like a lot of things in the early days of Tesla, there was just a lot of like hope and actually implementing was the challenge. And really early on, there was a realization that there was some challenges, some real problems with lithium-ion cells. And, and JB and his team had to figure out how to keep those cells from exploding. And that was the supplier issues early on. They had the LG Chem didn't want to didn't want to sell to them. And then they had it was a Kirk Kentley, I think you documented, trying to manage the Panasonic relationship. How do you think they got those relationships over the finish line? Well, you know, so it's interesting, you know, so here's lithium ion cells, uh, the auto industry initially when, you know, the idea that Tesla was going to use lithium ion cells. And even to this day, you hear some people think, oh, they, they've gone down the wrong path. There was just concern about these cells. And in fact, there's a very interesting moment in the company's history. They've got the early kind of prototype of the Roadster created. They're pretty excited about what's next. Uh, but then, you know, there's a lot of news about laptops catching fire. And their lithium ion cells are in the news. And J.B. Straubel, he decides, well, he needs to look into this. He already knew that they could be highly flammable. He, he had, you know, he'd been experimenting with these things. And but so he goes out to the parking lot outside of uh, Tesla's uh, office at that point and, you know, decides to see what could happen. Um, and he gets a pack of them together and wires it in a way so he can heat them up. And lo and behold, one of them goes off and then the whole thing explodes like Fourth of July. And, you know, the next day he's got to go in and, and tell the uh, CEO at the time, Martin Everhart, hey, we might have a problem. And so they go out and they do some more tests. And sure enough, they're concerned here because what happens if one of those cells um, overheats? And that's what they were seeing on laptops. Well, if one overheats, then it's going to light off all the other ones that they've got in their big pack. And so immediately this was, you know, a big concern. They brought in some experts and the experts said, well, listen, don't worry. It's only like one in a million cells are just going to have a problem. You're not even going to be able to see it. And they're just going to you know, ignite, essentially. They're going to get too hot and go into thermal runaway and explode. And so, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, they started doing the math, you know, like one in a million. They're going to be using a th thousands in a car. You know, this might be like one in every hundred car might have a problem, one in every thousand. It really, you know, this was, you know, existential problem here right out of the gate. And everything basically stopped at the companies. They tried to figure out how to address this problem. If you've got cells in your battery pack that you don't know are going to be problematic, they had to figure out a way to contain that energy. And this is where the big breakthrough with Tesla came, was the battery pack management. And they figured out a way 
through combination of software, but also a, a kind of a foam that goes around the cells to essentially dissipate that heat from something that's going into runaway and spread it through the rest of them so nobody gets too hot and no, and so this will avoid kind of a, a huge fire or in a, you know avoid turning the car into a bomb. If Tesla didn't have the battery breakthrough, there, there would be no company. Absolutely, this is a key thing, and you hit on this thing. So LG, LG was like. You know, we don't want our, you know, once they found out that their batteries were going to win a car, they didn't want that kind of publicity, right? There was a real reluctance in the cell community about getting involved in a car company because they were at reputational risk. And so early on, the challenge was convincing the, the battery makers that they should do business with a startup car company. Because they think about it. You know, if there's a problem, who who's going to go after? Who's going to be liable there? You know, a car company without any money or a deep-pocketed uh, battery supplier? That was some of the concern. And so early on, JB and Kurt really had to show suppliers that, you know, they were working on a system that was going to be safe. And, and Kurt is a very interesting player in the Tesla story. He's another example like JB of the, of the right person coming around at the right time. Here's a guy who had a deep understanding of Japanese culture. And it's the classic story. He, as a young man, had met uh, a woman in Japan, had fallen in love, and moved to Japan ultimately to, to learn Japanese at, at a deep level, to learn the, the culture, to be, to be married with her, to win the family's uh, trust. And he ends up at, at, at working for Panasonic, he spends a career there and is very successful in that endeavor and eventually comes back to the States and is in, in Silicon Valley for Panasonic when he gets wind of the Tesla project. And he had, you know, he had turned his nose up on, on other electric car projects before because of these concerns. But when he saw the Tesla, the Roadster, I mean, it looked like a real car. It looked like a real sports car. He was very excited. He, end up, he ends up leaving Panasonic and going to work for Tesla in the early days, you know, to the kind of amusement or confusion of his family. Why would you leave a, a, a giant like Panasonic for something called Tesla, right? But, you know, he, he's, he's a key hire because he can then help JB navigate that very complicated world of Japanese uh, large corporations. And he spends years building up those relationships, furthering his relationship within Panasonic. He understood how the company worked, but you know, it wasn't just showing up one day and saying, hey guys, remember me? It was, you know, they still had to kind of work through the system to, to sell that. And ultimately, um, it was about relationships, as it often is with Japanese companies. But then it was also JB being able to show this battery pack will be safe. There's also a great story later in the Tesla lifespan with the Gigafactory and brought the Panasonic executives out to the, the Gigafactory before it was even real. Could you, you share that with it? Because you did a really good job documenting that in the book. And it was like, whoa, okay, it's another one of those Tesla moments. Right. So you know, getting Panasonic... First, it was Sanyo, then it was Panasonic, as the relationship kind of changed between those companies. And once they got Panasonic, they really wanted Panasonic, because Panasonic, in their mind, was the, the kind of the, the place the cells were the best for them. Uh, that was where they wanted to go. So key, getting that relationship to provide the cells they needed for the Model S. The Sanyo provided for the Roadster, and then Panasonic came in. And so this is key. But the, the challenge continues to be, can they get enough cells? For the cars, right? They Elon has these really huge ambitions uh, for for selling vehicles, 
And the world isn't quite sure if his ambitions are, you know, legitimate, if there really is that kind of a demand for an electric vehicle. And so there's this tension there is it's it's with Tesla, there's often a, a you know, supply demand question, you know, can they make it enough or do people actually want these sorts of things? And, you know, you're asking a major supplier to make a big bet to build a lot of these things. And it's not clear if there's going to be a market for it, right? So this is a tension running. Well, with the success of the Model S in 2013, that really gives Elon new credibility. Um, but it also, it's a realization that if if Tesla's going to do what he his ambitions are, that to go beyond just being a niche kind of car maker to becoming a mainstream provider of electric vehicles, they're going to need just way more battery cells than the world is producing at that point in time. And so they start to think about, you know, how to do that. And they come up, they, they feel like they need a facility that's dedicated just to them. You know, then they start to think about, well, you know, we're shipping these cells from Japan over here and making battery packs. You know, the logistics cost of all that is crazy. Why not have a facility where the cells are being made on one end and the battery packs are made on the other? You could save, you know, a huge amount on logistics alone there. And so that they begin to then turn to Panasonic and say, hey, let's do this. Well, they run into a lot of challenges because, you know, Panasonic, that's not how Panasonic had operated. They didn't have a battery factory in the U.S. The idea of kind of co-working with another company, it was very new to them. And plus, you know, these ideas of how many millions of vehicles that Elon wants to sell seem a lot rather uh, ridiculous at that point in time. So this is a challenge that the company faces. But it, it's it's also it's happening at a period of time where Tesla is getting a lot of attention. There's a lot of excitement. And Panasonic internally is trying to, to become more of a tech company, it, it, more of a Silicon Valley flavor to it to kind of compete in a global stage. So there's, there was the potential there, right? And so one of the things that JB and Elon turn to is this kind of one of the tools they have done to sell the company is to, to kind of dangle the new shiny object out there. And so when the start of the company, it was the Roadster to get everybody excited about what the company could do. Then it was the Model S. OK, that's exciting. Well, with Panasonic, they went out and they got a bunch of land uh, in Nevada and started moving dirt around and started early construction. Now, they were they hadn't even finalized where they, you know, they, they were still negotiating with states to get incentives. And there was there was a big contest between Nevada and Texas. Who was going to get this Tesla factory? But, you know, secretly, they're moving this dirt around and they bring, you know, it's this massive construction site and they bring the Panasonic executives out, you know, kind of have a, a display and they show this. This is where our gigafactory is going to be located. And the, the message, you know, the implied message was, we're going to do this with or without you. If you want to be part of the future of the car industry, you got to get on board. And, and you know, it was a little bit of a bluff. Tesla didn't have the kind of money that it needed at that point to build, to go go alone. Tesla didn't have the resources to develop its own uh, battery cells at that point. Even though Elon was pushing his team, they just, this wasn't going to be really feasible. But it, it did work. It did seem to work. After that, Tesla really felt like, Tesla executives really felt like Panasonic was much more serious about the negotiations. The, the negotiations went a lot faster. And ultimately, they were able to get a deal to get Panasonic spend billions of dollars 
to do their half, their side of the factory, and, and Tesla is going to do their side. And that it becomes one of the key ways that Tesla is able to bring out the Model 3 to have the cells that it was going to need and try to get it close to the price point that they need it to, to make it more mainstream. Another example of how without Panasonic, it's hard to imagine Tesla. There's a lot of individuals that if they weren't involved with the company, it'd be hard to imagine Tesla today. And I'm gonna, I want to name a few of those individuals. There's one you dedicated a chapter to it, Tim Watkins, you call him the man in black, Peter Rollins and Doug Fields. They all played extremely important roles in getting Tesla to where it is today along with, with JB. What are your thoughts on those individuals and the crucial roles they play? Because your book did a wonderful job of documenting they're either putting out a fire, fixing something. Doug Fields gave the Model 3 ready to ship. Tim Watkins is is cleaning cleaning up. And then I forget the individual's name. He came over and built the Tesla stores and got the sales team going. So there was all these critical people seemed like as we got close to the danger zone, they'd pull an ace out of their hole and an individual would come in and, and accelerate growth and save it. Could you talk about those individuals and the critical role that they played to getting Tesla where it is today as the world's largest uh, publicly valued automaker? Yeah, so Tesla nearly goes into bankruptcy in 2008 during the Great Recession. They have a hard time getting capital. Elon, in a very kind of famous story, is able to save the day at the end of the year. And what that does is sets the basically recapitalize the company, buys them time to try to, to pursue the Model S. And this is going to be really Elon's vision of what Tesla is going to become. And it, he's also now he is CEO. He, he came into the company as the largest investor and chairman, but he hadn't been CEO, even though he, he, he did have some, you know, very firm beliefs of how the company should operate. He wasn't the guy in, in the, the CEO chair. But by 2009, he is. And you start to see at that point, uh, in a lot of ways, what I like to think of as Tesla 2.0, he's putting in place the team that he's going to need to bring the Model S out. And one of those key hires was Peter Rawlinson. Peter Rawlinson had been a vehicle engineer um, in the UK, had worked at Lotus, had worked at uh, Jaguar, had worked, um, you know, at these companies in a way in a way that was much different than, say, a Ford or a General Motors. He had had a more broader experience, had been perhaps a little bit more cutting edge, had taken to uh, using computers uh, to do engineering earlier than maybe some others. So I had a, had had an interest in building a car in a new way. And that is an example of one of the strengths that Elon has or had at that period of time was identifying talent, but not just identifying great talent, identifying talent that would buy into his vision and march the way that he wanted to see them march. And that Peter is a good example of that. When they when they first hook up, it's a really good relationship. And and Peter is the is essentially trying to put into 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 reality the vision that the design team at Tesla had already created and the wishes of Elon, basically trying to package all of that. And he does it with a very small team and moves very fast. And you, you see you see him now, he's he's operating, he's running Lucid Motors with a you know working on vehicles that some might argue are the next generation Model S. And so he's a key he's a key hire building that engineering culture, the car engineering culture. Uh, JB Straubel was off working on the battery stuff, but the car engineering was something they needed to learn. A another good example would be Doug Field. Doug had come from Apple where he had overseen development of the Mac, a computer lineup. Here is a seasoned corporate executive, seasoned at bringing out products, seasoned it being at a big company. And he arrives at Tesla 
in a later stage, that at a period of time when they've got the Model S out, but they're thinking about the Model 3, and they really need to become more of a corporation, if you will, uh, move beyond just the way a startup way. And and he he kind of he focuses on on that and and really puts a lot of attention in trying to make sure that the Model 3 could be easier to build than what they had done with the Model S and the Model X. Uh, those vehicles had been a real challenge uh, to build. People were getting injured because of uh, uh, repetitive stress uh, issues because they hadn't put into thought of how you're actually going to build some of this stuff. And it was very hard. And so that was one of the key things that he was doing. And he was also the mandate was to take costs out of that car. So the Model S, you know, a vehicle that's selling for like $100,000, $120,000 was not a mainstream vehicle. They were they were aiming to make the Model 3 a $35,000 vehicle. And so the, the marching orders there were really to keep what was special about the Model S, but make it more affordable. And so that field is a, a huge uh, kind of character in, in bringing Tesla where it is today. And so those are two two big two, two big people for sure. The other the other people you bring up, Tim Watkins and his partner Antonio Gracias, who is a board member, and George Blankenship, and I would say I put into this also John McNeil. These people really help augment where Elon is probably the weakest at, and that is dealing with the sales organization. Um, Elon does not like that salesmanship kind of aspect. He's a great marketer, but he he doesn't like the traditional car buying experience. And I know, you know, some people don't like it. You know, it's easy to understand why. And he wanted it to be more like buying an iPhone. And so what he did was he went out and hired the guy who helped create the Apple Store experience, George Blankenship. And, uh, you know, these are key people that come in to kind of build out that sales ability. One of the constant challenges Tesla has is that as the ambitions grow, they continue to struggle with those kind of basics of the car business, whether it's building the car or selling the car. Um, they've got these kind of, they've mastered or they've got some advancements with the battery technology and software, but the traditional meat and potato part of the car business, they, they struggle with. How much do you think the way that Elon manages Tesla has to do with his unceremonious departure from PayPal? Because you seem to allude a lot to it throughout the book. Yeah, there's definitely, a, a, the history of Tesla is really about a fight for control. First off, it's a fight to control to be the CEO, uh, to fight control again, with investors, a fight with uh, suppliers, a fight with the market in general, or regulators. I mean, there's just always a battle that's going on. And and you go back to Elon's early days when he's uh, booted from the CEO suite at PayPal. This, you know, this kind of was a, a, a formative experience. And people around him talk about how they think that that was one of the, the kind of the underlying issues that he has is he has a hard time with trusting people. And you see that at Tesla is that he just he's burned through a lot of senior executives and hasn't found kind of his number two or somebody to kind of take some of the burden um, off of, of him at, to, like he has it at, at, at SpaceX, his, his rocket company. He's got a very strong number two there who really deals with all the parts of the business he's not very interested in. Let him do what he does. Whereas at Tesla, that's been a challenge. Um, a lot of presidents have come and gone there. Um, a lot of senior churn. Um, some of it, you know, supporters of Tesla would argue, well, he's getting the best out of these people and then moving on to the next. Well, one of the challenges is there's not a lot of institutional knowledge and there's just not a lot of deep, there's not a deep bench of of big manager talent there. So 
you know, that it's clearly has been an issue in the early days. Those early days, he gambled, he doubled down, he tripled down, he, he got loans, he, he leveraged SpaceX stock. In my opinion, if he didn't do that, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about electric vehicles today. If you talk to your average consumer, they view Tesla as a self-driving car and electric vehicle. And in my opinion, it's a brand. It's not an automobile company because of the, the sheer might of the marketing machine. One of the things that's very unique about Elon Musk is his tolerance for risk. You know, it's not just the company he's risking. He's risking his own personal fortune. And you can't you don't see that in modern CEOs and automakers. And it gets to part of the thing. It's uh, he's an entrepreneur. This he was there from the early days. He really operates like his own company. He that gives him probably greater freedoms than say uh, a Mary Barra at GM. But also, you know, some of the things, the benefits of of him being CEO and him ha- one of the strengths he brings is his ability to sell the company, sell it to customers, but more importantly, sell it to investors over and over to raise the kinds of billions of dollars the company needed to get to where it is because the the bending metal is a cash-eating game and without that cash they wouldn't have been able to get where they are and so it's he's that's a key thing he's bringing to the table to sell the future of cars right and he's he's been able to do that but also what it enabled as ceo who's able to pull the levers he could kind of lean into what he wanted to do Right. So think about early days of the company. They're working on what would be known as the Model S. He is not CEO and he is really frustrated with the work that's being done. Uh, some engineers from Detroit have been hired. They've been told it's got to be a $50,000 car. They're really trying to do stuff creative to save money. And Elon just feels like it's full of compromises and it's junk. Once he becomes CEO, he hires Peter Rawlinson and he deploys him. And really the marching orders are to make the best car that just happens to be electric. And they're doing all sorts of things that the traditional automakers would just couldn't believe, right? They were gonna do a giant touch screen in the middle of the dash. I mean, that's just think how much money that is. You could hear the Detroit bean counters say, or, you know, they were gonna have, you know, you know all these other kind of luxury features. And sure enough, the car comes out at like $100,000 to get the one you want, right? That's, if you are a product manager at Ford or General Motors, and your your remit was to do a fifty thousand dollar car, and you come out with a hundred thousand dollar car, you're not having a career at Ford or GM, right? I mean, this is not how you get ahead. But Elon Musk is the CEO of the company, and he's able to raise the money, and he's using that car to go sell the vision of the future of Tesla. He's seeing it as critical, make or break. The car has to be the best, or it's the company doesn't have the future, right? So th- these are different mindsets from traditional car companies, which when you're working on products there, your remit is just totally different. So here's one of the levers I like to point at is, here's an example of how him in the weeds as CEO helped the company in a way that you just, it's hard for others to replicate. You could also make the case he helped the company going back to the original Roadster when they, were, they kept getting delayed and he personally was going to financially guarantee the deposit. That was a big step as those you, you documented your book pulling reservations and there was other things throughout the history where he personally rolled his sleeves up to get stuff through yeah absolutely i mean you know and some of that might some might the critics might say well that was pretty risky of him to do did he really have the money to do that the, some of the risks he was willing to take was raise money that the company needed by selling deposits of having 
customers put deposits down. That could have got real messy for Tesla if they weren't able to deliver. And there was concerns in the company about you know what would happen if they if that if that happened. So that's it, yeah, you're right. He is in the trenches at some very critical times, and it's hard to say what would happen if he wasn't there. In part because, as you know, when the CEO is on the factory floor, that's driving the 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 institution's focus to whatever the problem is. Really, that's kind of his philosophy at this point is he's jumping into the things that are the most important for the company. Uh, Oftentimes, it's whatever is on fire. Like the guy, dislike the guy, he's gambled everything he has to get it to where it is today. Where do you think Tesla's going in the future? There's been, you documented the dinner with Larry Ellison, Masa from SoftBank, and, and the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. We saw where that went with the SEC. Where do you ultimately think Tesla's going in the future? Well, let's just say that tomorrow there was no Tesla. It just goes away for whatever reason. You could you could credibly make the argument that Elon Musk and Tesla's vision for the future of the car has won the day with General Motors and Volkswagen and many more uh, spending billions and billions of dollars to put electric vehicles onto the roadway with regulators around the world pushing for the electrification of their fleets. The idea of the electric car as a mainstream vehicle is now something that is not improbable, but most probable. And that is in large part a credit to the success of Elon Musk and Tesla. And that's, that's the legacy. What happens beyond tomorrow, I think is still up for debate. One of the challenges they have is that a company struggles with execution. Uh, it's been something they've done, they've struggled with a long time, and they've got to get better at that. They've got to be able to bring out multiple products uh, at the same time. Uh, they've got to be able to meet deadlines. They've got to be able to foster and develop um, a future leadership uh, team there. So it is not all heroics uh, by uh, the CEO because. I think it's very clear that in 2018, it took a toll on Elon Musk and it's taken a toll on the company. But despite that, they've been able to perform. But you know, can they do that forever? It's, it's hard to imagine uh, a company that's going to span generations being done that way. So uh, the future is still being written and they still uh, are in the teenage years. The future's still being written. The market's changing. You you said this earlier. Lucid's coming out with the air. You can say that's the perfect version of the Model S. It's a it's a beautiful car. It rides beautifully. You've documented in your book about the Tim Cook meeting. Well, it's been publicly documented. You've reported it, and other your colleagues of the journal reported it. There's something going on at Apple. Everybody can admit to that. Apple's got the cash to pretty much do anything they want. Do they come out with a a better version of a Tesla? And then we had the big news yesterday. Rivian's rocking and rolling. They're coming off the line. And it's really interesting. Looking at the electric vehicle market, you don't really hear bitty boppity boop about problems out of Rivian. It just seems to be quiet, steady as she goes. What in the future? What if Tesla kind of adopted the RJ approach, steady, quiet as she goes? Would the company be nearly as have many detractors and people that love it as it has today? Will Rivian kind of just gently goes along its way. Will Tesla ever get to that? It will always continue to be 50% on this side, 50% on that side. Well, it's a, it's a good question. You think about Elon Musk and Tesla, they're so intertwined, the brand and the man, and for the good and the bad. For the good is that Elon is able to use his Twitter following of what, almost 60 million followers, pure free marketing, direct those fans to 
uh, the newest features to build the excitement. He's become a celebrity in his own right, hugely beneficial to the company. Clearly, with being able to raise money from investors, these are key things. But clearly, there's also been some downside. Um, when it takes, when he's he's having an off day or when he does something he shouldn't do, that hurts, that creates risk for investors. So that's that's kind of one of those challenges for Tesla going forward is, is how that's resolved. And to your point, the auto industry isn't standing still. There are not only are the traditional automakers coming for Tesla, but their Tesla success has inspired copycats and investors to look for the next Teslas, right? When Tesla was first trying to raise money uh, in the early days, the idea of putting money into a startup car company was rather ridiculous. I mean, the amount of years you were going to need and the amount of capital, it just wasn't, you just didn't, it was hard to imagine the return. Well, Tesla has shown that there's some potential there, still very risky, of course, but it's got some people very excited and they have been able to benefit from that. And so what I, I think what's probably happening here is that for years we thought that a General Motors or a BMW or whoever would, you know, get into the electric game and come out with the Tesla killer, you know, something that was going to be, was going to be well-made, you know, wasn't going to have these uh, production quality issues, was going to have a great service, and it was just going to show customers that, you know, they could do it better and this was going to hurt Tesla. Well, many have come and tried that, many have failed. The future, though, is probably more nuanced, and it's not the Tesla killer, it's the Tesla nibblers. You're going to have so many competing versions of that Tesla vision that it nibbles away at, at, at Tesla's customer base. And that will be one of the challenges is how does Elon and how does Tesla keep the brand exciting? How does it keep the, the product fresh? And how does it keep it on the cutting edge? And, and that's, that's the challenge for not just Tesla, that's the challenge for any car company that sees success. I like the term Tesla nibblers because you look at what Mercedes has with their EQ line. They have a true SUV coming, which will some uh, Model X owners that want an SUV might move over there. Rivian has their SUV coming, so you're right. They're going to get a, a couple customers here, a couple customers there, and the customers will be will be spread around as, as more and more electric vehicles that appeal to these customers coming on. Which raises the big question: If Elon Musk decided one day to retire or said, "I'm, I'm done. I'm going to focus purely on SpaceX and do something else," and just took a board seat at Tesla and removed himself from day to day. Is there a Tesla anymore? Well, clearly there is a Tesla, right? I mean, the amount of uh, investment in the Model 3, you can go out and buy it and, you know, there, there's something there. But you hit on this, this this issue. There is probably, most people agree, or many analysts would, would say that there's probably an Elon Musk premium in the stock. Um, and this, you know, was raised concerns in 2018 when there was... The, you know, the real risk that Elon was going to be booted from the company at the C-suite because of his comments on Twitter and the SEC. And, and you saw investors react poorly to that. You know, the concern was, would Tesla be able to raise the kind of money with, without Elon that it needed to kind of bridge to that next jump? One of the things the company has now that it's at its advantage is that with the success of the Model 3, with the success of opening the China factory, with the success of being able to show consecutive quarters of profitability and to get through the early, very dark days of the coronavirus pandemic, that there is incredible investor enthusiasm that allowed Tesla to raise the kind of cash 
that it never really been able to do in the past to it very cheaply um, and to create a, a war chest to try to help it weather the inevitable cyclical downturn and also fuel the growth plans that you know are, are the underpinning of that valuation so it's it, you know it, it becomes a virtuous cycle if you will um, the excitement about the future helps raise more money. Being able to successfully get to some of those goals just builds more excitement. And it's really made uh, Tesla very affordable in the now. The Tesla bulls are extremely vocal. They're some of the most outspoken bulls on Wall Street. And they lock and load and they put millions and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars believing in their in their bullish stance on, on Tesla. It's going to be really interesting to see five years from now, three years from now, how the market values Tesla as more and more of these vehicles come online. That, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but I can tell you it's going to be really interesting to watch. And if you continue to write these great columns for the journal, I know you're going to be covering it. So I'm looking forward to reading those in the future. And Tim, we've covered a lot of ground on this podcast today. And I want to say to listeners, please, please, please go out and, and buy Tim's book, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bed of the Century. It was a phenomenal read, and most importantly, it did a phenomenal job documenting the early days of Tesla, and you learned to appreciate the, the engineering and proudness that went into making Tesla what it is today. And Tim, thanks for writing the book. Bang up job. What would you like our listeners to take away from this conversation? And I'm assuming they can order your book on Amazon, or how would you like them to order your book? Yeah, from your favorite retailer, uh, online or in person. You know, one of the things that the book, my goal in the book was to try to tell the definitive history of the company, how it got to where it is today, and get beyond some of the Twitter sensationalism, uh, get beyond some of the kind of the, the myth, and really tell these stories of people beyond just Elon. You know, a lot of the attention, people like to focus in on, you know, whatever whatever wild thing Elon says, or he's he dropped the F-bomb, or he's yelled and fired somebody. And there's, well, clearly there's that in this book, but the book is way more nuanced than that. It is really trying to show how people were, you know, faced with really hard challenges, really hard questions, and how they answered them, and why they answered them that way. And that's, uh, I think, comes across in the book, and I think will be really of interest to a lot of your listeners who are facing challenges of their own. There was really great stories in there, and, it's, and as Tim said, it's not just Elon. There was a great story about a factory worker that who went blind at the Numi plant and then regained through, um, through a God's gift his vision. He ended up working at the Tesla plant. So it's a lot of really good, interesting stories there that you, as Tim said, you don't hear about on Twitter, and, and really good job on that, Tim. Because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is electric vehicles. Tim Higgins, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. It was an absolute blast. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Be sure to join us next time when I sit down with Robert Bilby, Senior Director, Automotive System Architecture, Embedded Business Unit, and Micron Technology, as we discuss how their memory and storage solutions optimize the driving experience. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate review and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next by emailing us at podcast at sae.org that's podcast at sae.org and be sure to follow us on linkedin to stay connected to continue the conversation sae international makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast the information and opinions are for general information only 
SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.